Easter Monday. I am so glad to be here with you live on Easter Monday, digging into God's Word once again on Steadfast. It's a joy to be with you. Tonight we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 2, the next few verses. We started a series last week in that chapter called Dawning, and it's going to be a kind of weird juxtaposition it might feel like at first. Why are we talking so much about fire and brimstone type topics, literally, in, in this, this chapter. That's where Peter goes here. But as we go along, we're going to see that this actually ties perfectly into Easter, but it challenges us to think about how we approach Easter. Are we understanding what Jesus has actually done for us when we celebrate that he has triumphed over death? That's where Peter's going to challenge us to think tonight, to look into our own hearts and to understand our own selves a little bit better and where we're going. And then to be able to fully and truly embrace what God is doing, because we know that he is faithful. Would you pray with me, please, as we get started? Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your love. Thank you for sending your son into the world to save us. As, as we celebrated yesterday that, that he is risen, that he has triumphed over death. Lord, would you, would you strengthen us through that knowledge? Would you give us hope through that knowledge? And even tonight, as we think about the alternative... As we, we are challenged to think about your judgment, Lord, as we look to the resurrected Savior, would you give us hope? Would you help us to experience the wonder of what you do for us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking about preparing for this over the last few days in context of the buildup of joy for Easter and how it does feel, like I said, it feels a little weird. We don't really like thinking about judgment generally. We certainly don't like to think about right in the midst of celebrating. We've just had joy. What are we doing talking about judgment? And generally speaking, in our society, we're not very amenable anymore at all to talking about judgment. Unless it's in a very isolated realm of society. This is what struck me this last week. I was listening on the radio and I was hearing about the back and forth argument over an athletic controversy. I don't follow basketball, I'll, I'll admit. I mean, there's baseball. Why would I follow anything else? Baseball is a true sport, right? But, but apparently the, the great, big, huge tournament, and it was an epic showdown in the NCAA women's basketball tournament, took place, I believe it was sometime last week. And the first lady observed, as she'd watched these two teams battle it out, that she thought maybe not just the LSU Tigers that won, but also the Iowa Hawkeyes that lost the tournament should be invited to the White House. And in that, she was referring to this tradition that, that the winner of major sports competitions gets an invitation to visit with the, the president and first lady at the White House to have a meal there. It's something that we see with all sorts of different sporting events. But notably, the thing is, the, the people who are invited are always the winners. And here she was proposing bringing in the losers as well. And there have been different explanations. But the clear thing was, depending on what political side of the aisle you fell on or whatever it might be, you may have been upset about different things. But pretty much everybody was upset. And, and it seemed to come down to this, that, that we like cut and dry judgment in sports. We like it to be there's a winner and a loser. And no matter how excited she may have been that that the losing team fought really well and so on, it, it we have a way of doing these things. You invite the winner to the White House, not the loser. And it 
devolved into this huge argument with different people citing different reasons why she'd done this and so forth, but it really just boiled down to, I think, a picture of the tension we have in our culture in general. We like that judgment when it comes to athletics because it, it's, it's there and we take it very seriously, but it doesn't really strike at home. On the other hand, we desperately want to think that, that God is thinking in the very same way that the First Lady was thinking about these these two basketball teams, that he's going to invite everybody to his house, that, that everyone can come and have dinner with him, and it doesn't matter if you're the righteous or the unrighteous. It doesn't matter if you do what he calls you to do or not, if you worship him or not. In the end, he's just going to say, you know, everybody did pretty well. It's a hard world down there. Just come on over. It's all okay. And so while we become very uncomfortable with blurring all the lines in athletics, we want those cut and dry lines. Everywhere else, we'd really like those blurry gray areas where everyone's sort of okay. And I, here's what I think it really comes down to in our hearts. I think we know, even if we want to pretend we have it all together, even if we want to pretend that that we're good enough to meet God's qualifications, that we're good enough to win the tournament of life, I think all of us really know we're not. And whether you already follow Jesus or not, I think we know that we're not, that we need help. And once we start to admit that, once we start to admit there's judgment, once we start to admit that God actually calls us to do something, to follow him, to not just say, well, it's all going to work out in the end, we have to actually admit that we need rescue. That makes us uncomfortable. And Peter's going to make us uncomfortable here, but let's go ahead and let him make us uncomfortable because sometimes we need to be. Sometimes we need to confront what, what's allowing us to be lulled into just this quiet stupor that makes us think everything's going to be okay when we're talking about matters of life and death, when we're talking about why Easter was necessary, when we're talking about why should we even have joy on Easter? Well, we're going to think about all that tonight. Let's dig in to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter says, For if God did not spare angels when, when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous after, under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. There's a lot in here, and there are several different incidents that, that Peter outlines here. We have the, the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. We have the flood with Noah. And we have this mysterious judgment of angels. We see different allusions to it throughout Scripture. There's some issues with angels in Genesis 6. We see some prophecies in Isaiah speaking of the judgment of angels. And we have Second Peter, we have Jude that make reference to this, a few different passages, some hints in the Gospels, all these different hints. We don't get the full picture, but what we do have is a sense that it boils down in each of these cases, ultimately, to pride and rebellion. 
And that's what Peter ends with here. They're in rebellion against God. And in each case, whether it was the angels, the angels that followed after Satan and rebelled against the Father, or we're talking about the false teachers in, in Peter's day who are, are teaching different things to the church for their own benefit, or what we do today. What does it really come down to? It comes down to our pride. We want to think we make the team. We, we're good enough to go to the White House. We don't need to to acknowledge that there's going to be any way that we might not be invited to the White House. We're good to go. It comes down to pride and also comes down to rebellion because we want to be good enough to go even if we don't do everything the way that God wants us to. Imagine if one of those basketball teams decided to ignore all the rules and just play however they wanted to, but they said, well, I still thought I'd get an invitation to the White House. I played hard. I played the way I wanted to, but I played hard. You'd say, well, that's ridiculous. That's even more ridiculous than any kind of controversy about whether the winning and losing team go. The team that just actively rebels against the rules, that's utterly ridiculous. That's how we play every single day. And even as people are getting upset about that controversy over the basketball teams, that's how we're playing in life so often because we have pride and we rebel against God. And we're really good at seeing how other people have pride and how other people rebel against God. But we're not very good at seeing how we're prideful and how we're rebellious. Isn't that funny how that works? That, that our sins don't really seem to be sins. And that seems to be what's happening with these false teachers. They, they have their own sins, their own desires, their own ways of pleasing themselves that they want to chase after. And so they create a facade that makes it look like that's still righteousness. That's still okay. And some of the people that follow them, why do they follow them? Because those false teachers are also feeding into those followers' own sinful habits, their own temptations. It, it authenticates them and verifies them. While, on the other hand, they can go ahead and condemn everyone else because they can still see the other people's unrighteousness. They can feel pretty good about themselves. And we can do this today. We aren't just able to do this. Friends, we do do this. I do this. You do this. We, we do this. We, we find reason to be outraged at other people's sin and not at our own. And that's what Peter wants to challenge us with here. He says, in these examples that he's giving, notice what he says about them. Verse 4, once again, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, if God wouldn't spare heavenly creatures when they sin, when they rebel, then he's saying, why do you think he's going to spare you or me if we rebel against God, if we don't have any interest in doing what God has called us to do? What are examples? What are samples really about? They exist to give us a taste of something to come. If you go to the, the flooring store and you look at a hardwood floor or a carpet, you see this little square, you don't say, well, I guess that there's these squares and some people put a little square in their house. No, you know that's a sample of what's going to go all over the floor. If you go to the warehouse club and they have the table out with food, you can't resist that, right? So you take the little sample and say, wow, everything is so small here. Well, no, you're at the warehouse club. You know everything's oversized. They've cut out a little piece for you to sample. They give us a taste. They tell us what's coming. Peter's saying this gives us a taste. It's a sample of what's to come. And for example, when, when the ark was being built, when Noah was being faithful to God, he was giving a sample. He was the Costco sample person handing out samples of God's righteousness, and people could decide what they wanted to do with it. Verse 5, once again. 
if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Take a look at how the author of Hebrews wrestles with this in verse 7 of chapter 11 of Hebrews. He says, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So what are we told? Noah actually building the ark, Noah hearing what God had called him to do and then doing it was actually him proclaiming righteousness to the world. He was a preacher of righteousness, we could translate this. Why? Because he was showing what was to come. Here comes this flood. It's coming at you. God's anger is coming at you. But God rescues. He's told me that I should build this ark. Imagine if people actually respond to Noah and said, Wow, I didn't realize that we were so far out of tune with God. I want to be more like God. I want to be righteous. Imagine if they'd done that. We're told in, in extra-biblical materials, such as First Clement, a, a letter written by the second or third bishop of Rome, very early Christian, that, that people actually heard Noah preaching, that he didn't just preach by example, he actually preached. And that's not in the scriptures, but it, it's a long-running tradition that Clement is referring to. It, it's very likely that people questioned Noah, and as they questioned him, he said, this is what I'm doing, you should repent that Noah preached repentance. But what do we see? The world doesn't like that. We don't like that kind of concept. We like certain concepts of, of the future. I, you think about concept cars, maybe a flying car or a concept home. Look at this home of the future that does everything for you. We think about these sorts of things and we like to think about those because they're pleasant about the future. They, they're, they're going to make life easier for us. Get rid of everything that bothers us. Problem is a lot of times they don't happen. I was reading an article last week about a future in which we won't age. And there are all these tech investors who are investing in these biotech companies that think they can find the right pill that switches off certain genes in us that will stop the aging process. We'll just live forever in, in bodies that don't grow old. Wouldn't that be amazing, right? What are they really trying for? Well, they're not trying to be more righteous. They're trying to take everything the world wants to say we have permission to do, everything that's sinful, everything that's pleasing to ourselves in the moment, and yet ultimately is destroying us, we'll have all kinds of time to do it because we'll be nice and healthy and we can just be our own masters forever. We don't have to confront ugly things like death anymore. That's what they're really chasing after. And the article presented like this was going to happen in the next five or ten years. I'll admit I'm dubious about the idea that anyone's going to find that secret fountain of youth. They've been looking for it for an awfully long time and they haven't found it. But they are on to something. When they say they're going to give us eternal life, guess what? We already have eternal life. It's already there. And the question is, where do we want to spend it? Do we want to spend it in God's presence or not? Because yes, there is judgment. We can't take a pill and escape all the consequences of our sin, all the consequences of living in a sinful world. We can't do that. There will always be those until the day that Jesus returns. But we can choose how we want to reflect on that. We need to recognize that, that we need rescue, that, that we are those, as we sample what's happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, as we sample what happened to those angels, as we sample what happened in the flood when, when everyone was destroyed other than Noah and his family, when we sample those things and we see that they've happened, those aren't weird, isolated events and the rest of the time God is just sitting up in heaven singing Kumbaya. 
God is going to bring his righteous judgment. It's going to come. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to wait for some miracle pill to take? Or are we going to take the gospel right now? What did we celebrate last night at, at Little Hills? And I was going to say just last night. We didn't celebrate just last night. We celebrate it all day and we should celebrate it every day. And that's the resurrection. What are we celebrating? We're celebrating that Jesus overcame death, the consequences of sin. What does he call us to do? He calls us to turn to himself. Here is the heart of it. We need to recognize that we need rescue and we need to accept rescue. And as we accept rescue, then we need to look at all that brokenness in the world that we want to take part in, that we have taken part in, that we continue to take part in, and recognize the damage it does. We want to turn from it. Notice what it says in verse 8 about Lot. It says, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now notice here, we're, Scripture refers to Lot as righteous. He doesn't seem like the most upstanding character, but he trusted God. He listened. Unlike his future son-in-laws who refused to listen to the angels, he and his family left before the judgment. They responded. His wife didn't respond fully, of course. That's a story for another day. But what do we see? This righteous man was tormenting himself, we're told. Why? Because he chose to live in the midst of the sinfulness. Even if he was, quote-unquote, righteous, even if he was trusting in God and he listened to God's messengers when they came to tell him that, that judgment was coming, even if that were true, and it is because Scripture says it is, he still tormented himself. And we torment our souls time and again when we engage in sin, even after we believe. It may not bring ultimate judgment, but, but Lot was experiencing a form of judgment in his life in that moment by tormenting himself, by existing in that. I, I've heard over and over today, people are exclaiming about a big TV show sensation. Apparently a new episode came out last night. Everyone's talking about it. So I looked it up on IMDb, looked up the content guide. And, and it's just shocking everything that's in that show. Wow. That's true of so many hit shows today. But but wow, I mean, I just look at this. And I think 10, 20 years ago, they wouldn't have stood for this to be on television at all, no matter the station. It wasn't wouldn't have to be a religious station. Any station would have blushed at some of the stuff they put in these shows. And yet here's the thing that really struck me. What made me curious to look it up was that I saw a notable Christian talking about how amazing it was. And I saw other Christians talking about it. And this happens time and again. What are we watching? What are we listening to? What are we surrounding ourselves with? Even if we're maintaining a level of righteousness like Lot did, even if we're trusting in Jesus, what are we tormenting our souls with? Because in that we're saying, okay, I want to escape judgment, but let me experience some judgment right now. I want to experience the consequence of that. Lot's called righteous. And certainly, even if we sin, even if you sin tonight after listening to this, God is a God of forgiveness. We're all going to sin. I'm going to sin again and again and again. But that's different than actually actively tormenting ourselves with it by just going right back into it. And yet we do that. And in that, we're kind of saying, well, I kind of need rescue, but I don't really want rescue. So let me challenge each of us tonight. Let me challenge myself and you tonight. What ways am I doing that? What ways are you doing that? Maybe you haven't trusted in Jesus at all, and you just need to say, I need rescue completely right now. I know I have no rescue at the moment. I'm so happy if you say that, because what a joy it is to know Jesus. And I, I hope that you'll actually say, 
Jesus, rescue me right now. I'm a sinner. I need your rescue. But for those of us who have already said that and who already have trusted in Jesus and already believe in him and are experiencing his salvation, let us also understand that we're saying, bring some judgment on me. Let me experience it. Even if I won't experience it ultimately, I want to experience some of it now every time that we surround ourselves and embed ourselves in sin. We need to understand what God is doing and how much we need that rescue. Verse 7, Peter says, And if he rescued the righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived, this is what we looked at earlier, among them day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. We need rescue. But notice how Peter says that there. Commentators have noticed that the Greek is really kind of awkward in this sentence. And it's awkward for a reason, because Peter has been talking about judgment. He's building up to judgment. But what does he do then right in the midst of building up all this judgment? He says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He wants to go right to the hope. Right to the hope that we have, that we've been celebrating over Easter, that Jesus has taken on our sin for us, that there's actually rescue. And, and Peter talks about this in a related passage in his first letter, 1 Peter 3.18 and following. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were being brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Notice what Peter is saying here. He's referring again to the angel rebellion, and, and this gets into murky waters. We're not going to solve it tonight. I, I received a question through our, our prayer and question line today that we mention every week. Someone asking about the idea of Jesus descending into hell over the time between the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, certainly this passage is something that people have wrestled with trying to make sense of that. What does it mean that he proclaimed to the rebellious spirits? We, we have a few other passages we could look at there too, but what seems very clear that we can say is that through Jesus' death and resurrection, he proclaimed to those who rebelled against him that he had victory, that that rebellion wasn't successful. It couldn't stand. We think that our rebellion can stand or that Jesus won't mind our particular rebellion but it won't stand either. But what do we find? It doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with judgment. That's why this is a hopeful, joyful passage, even as it seems kind of gloomy and dark. Because right smack dab in the middle of it is that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. The Lord will rescue us if we turn to him. Turn to him tonight. He will rescue you. As we think about those in rebellion that have chosen instead to experience judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah, as they rebelled and had no interest, and God showed an example of what is to come, he's doing that in those moments to say, but I want something else for you. 
in that tradition that I referred to earlier that, that Noah actually preached as part of his work as he was building the ark, we're told that some repented. Now, again, this is not in scripture. It's in the tradition around scripture. I kind of like that thought. Maybe some people, we know that there weren't other people in the ark, but maybe some people who, who died during the, the century that, that Noah was building that ark even, some people maybe saw it and thought, hmm, maybe there's something to that. Maybe I should grow closer to the Lord. And so even though they didn't occupy the ark and, and go on that, that trip as the waters bore the ark around the earth, even though they, they didn't experience that, they experienced lasting salvation in, in the Lord. That's what we can experience too. That's what Jesus has ultimately provided in his triumph. And he invites us to join it as well. And that's what Peter's talking about when then he goes on to baptism. And we might think, well, it seems like the water was kind of destructive in Noah's day. How does that relate? But Peter says for Noah and his family, the water was, was rescued because it picked up that ark. And as God poured judgment down on the earth, it was lifting up something that saved Noah and his family. And likewise, when we say, I want to be a part of God's family, how do we do that? Well, we respond by accepting Jesus. And what is it that Jesus calls us to do in obedience? If you haven't been baptized, you should not just accept Jesus and then stop. You should go ahead and receive baptism as well. Why do we get baptized? We get baptized because baptism is what we receive to say we're a part of his people. Just as circumcision was given to the Old Testament people of God, so too the New Testament people of God, the followers of Jesus, should be baptized. And as we're baptized, we're saying, I want to be on the ark. I want the ticket to God's salvation. I don't want to be a part of the destruction. I'd want rescue. We become part of the church. And yes, the church is flawed. Noah was flawed. His family was flawed. The ark wasn't a sin-free zone, but the ark was a zone of safety because God had provided it to escape judgment. As we say, I want to be a part of God's people. I want to be a part of the church. I want to be a follower of Jesus. We're saying not, I'm going to go join the people that have it all together because we don't. If you've never been in the church or it's been a long time, trust me, if you're around us, this is the sort of thing you should actually hear someone say, trust me, and you should actually listen to. A lot of times you should be skeptical of those that phrase, but you can trust me on this one. You're going to find out we're messed up. You're going to find out that we're deeply messed up people because we're still sinners. That's not what saves us. When it's talking about righteousness here, what's it saying? What's Peter saying? What does God want us to know? It's that as we turn to him, he will save us and call us righteous. When God's people are gathered, we point to the rescue that he's doing. That's what happened in the ark. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah was a herald of righteousness, just being on the ark. Today, when we follow Jesus, when we become part of the church, when we follow Jesus by being the people of God together, what are we proclaiming? That we are people that needed rescue, and therefore the world needs rescue too. Noah's righteousness spoke not of how holy he was, but how committed he was to understanding that God was just. That God will bring judgment. As we think about the idea that pro proclaiming God's righteousness brings repentance, and we see that over and over again in Old Testament and New Testament, what do we find there? We find that as we proclaim, I need to repent, I need rescue, 
that what we're doing is we're supposed to be out there saying that to people so that they know that they need rescue too, that, that they have hope to. Our calling isn't a calling of ultimately primarily judgment. The judgment is there to help us to, to realize how messed up we are, that we are messed up people. Our job then is to declare the hope. And that's why Peter interrupts his sentence flow even to do it. He can't wait to get there. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Reminded of my office back when I was teaching at the local college. And I, I was assigned what was a was meant to be the utility closet. It was supposed to have a copier in it and some other equipment. It had no windows. It looked like a little prison cell. It was really, really not a particularly nice space. But after it got some bookcases in it and a nice desk and, and warm lights and so on, it started to look like a nice space. And, and what happened around it, this little clunky office that no one wanted, that was the only reason it was offered up to me. What happened to the people around it? Well, they started trying to spruce up their spaces too. Eventually someone wanted my space. I ended up being moved because someone wanted that space. I remember when she walked into it after I'd moved all my stuff out and how disappointed she was. Because she'd seen the trappings of it and wanted that space, but what she didn't realize was that it was something else that had rescued that space. Don't want just the trappings of the church. Don't come just on Easter. Don't just want certain things to say or, or, or certain t-shirts to wear or maybe a Bible verse in a moment. Don't want just the trappings in your life. Don't stop there. It's just a clunky office by itself. You want the warmth of the lamps and the bookcases of God's love and his wisdom and his care for you. That's what we need. And here's what happens. Those people around noticed that office when it changed. We need to live such lives that people notice the change in us. And it's not a negative change. Oh, look at that judgmental person. But it's a change to look how warm that glow of God's love is in that person's life. Yeah, I don't understand him all the time. He seems a little weird. She seems a little weird following Jesus, talking about going to church, all this stuff. There's something warm and alluring about that. I want a part of that. I think I want that office. Then let's make sure that we're communicating clearly enough that people understand not that it's, it's the office itself, but it's the God that's inside of it. He's the one that brings the light. He is the ultimate lamp, the ultimate bookcase. And that as we experience that rescue, it's meant to be that we go out and we're, as a friend of mine liked to say, rescued rescuers, called to rescue other people. Here's the truth of Easter. And it's the truth that Peter is dwelling in fully, even in this gloomy-seeming passage. It's that Jesus is risen, Christ is risen, and in him we can rise too. We see the judgment. But in that judgment, we turn and we see the mercy and the love of God. And we see the risen Lord, that he is risen. He invites us to rise with him. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you for for bearing the sins that I could never survive bearing on my own, that would bring my own destruction just as the destruction came upon Sodom and Gomorrah, just as the destruction came upon the world during the flood, just as the destruction and judgment has come upon the rebellious angels. Or the different places where, where false teaching, where false morality, where false self-righteousness, all these things pull at me, Lord, would you help me to turn away from them? Would you help all of us to? And instead to embrace your rescue, for indeed you are one who knows how to rescue and will rescue all who call upon your name. Lord, as we 
we think about the waters of baptism, they remind us that, that you are one who calls us into your family, that you are risen, that you are alive, that you are the king, and you care about us. Would you help us to trust all the more in you, and would you help us to show the warm glow of your light and your love in our lives, we pray in Jesus' precious name, for you indeed are the one who offers rescue. Amen. I hope this has been an encouragement to you tonight. Maybe it felt a little gloomy at first, but I hope as we get to this end here, you see what's so wonderful about Easter. And we need to talk about this more as believers. We, we need to share this. And so if you would, please consider giving this video a like or a share. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow our page. You can use all of our different social media to do it. But it sure does help because the world is running towards judgment. God's rescue is right there, and we are those who are rescued rescuers called to share it with people, to share the wonder of who Jesus is. And that's what we're going to be thinking about more on Sunday nights as we begin our brand new series, Everyday Jesus, starting this Sunday at 530. I hope you'll join us in person or online for Sunday worship as we begin this series exploring the normal everyday moments of the life that Jesus shared with his disciples, what that tells us about our Lord. Also, look at what God is doing. Those of you who are on here on a regular basis, the, this wonderful family God has formed. We just celebrated Easter, and in that we see that testimony of God's rescue. And I'm just amazed. Here's a picture from, from yesterday during our Easter Sunday service. We, we had our first Easter Sunday service as Little Hills Church. We'd never done one online or in person. We did both last night together as we were together as a church family, whether you were in the building or following us on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter. What an amazing thing it is that we were able to gather together and celebrate the risen Lord. We're rescued rescuers together, and I'm so thankful that you're a part of that. Two weeks from now, two Sundays from now, I should say, a little less than two weeks from now now, that's a mouthful. So is, um, it's just so amazing what we're going to be celebrating. We're going to be celebrating that we've had a year of Sunday services, a year of in-person worship. I hope that you'll make plans to be there for 5.30 p.m. that Sunday night. It's going to be a wonderful special service as we continue to celebrate God's goodness. And of course, we're going to continue on Monday nights as well. Next week, we'll continue in this series looking at the dawning of God's work in this world that's still happening as we anticipate Jesus's return. In the meantime, if you have any prayer requests, any questions, feel free to shoot me an email at the email address on screen, or excuse me, the text line on screen. I'm a little slap happy after Easter, but please do text that number, anything you need prayed for, any questions you might have, or leave a comment or a prayer request in the comments below, and we can pray for each other together that way. Hope you have a wonderful and blessed week. He is risen, and I can't wait to continue to celebrate that with you in the days ahead.